in a past, past life of mine, I, uh, I uh, worked for a company called Metropolitan Life Insurance, and I sold life insurance. And uh, it was some 30-plus years ago, and uh, I was a young, punk, 20-plus-year-old kid, still wet behind the ears. And it was probably one of the hardest jobs I ever had. Here, um, you're trying to sell a product that's based on uh, a future event that most people don't want to think about. And the product is something that a lot of people don't trust in, and it's, off, and it's also very expensive. So, um, so it was tough to make a living off of that and, and for, you know, some things I did and things out of my control. Um, that job only lasted a year and a half. But I, I worked for this big company called Metropolitan Life. I, I think they were, at the time, they were the largest company in the world, and I don't know if they are or not. I don't know. But... Um, they, to keep their sales force motivated and uh, tuned to the task be, uh, before them, they would probably weekly, we would get these little flyers in our mail folder that would tell, talk about events where, where people, you know, because they had bought life insurance, um, you know, good things happened from that. And it, even in the, in the midst of a crisis, good things still were able to come from it. And I remember... This was probably the only flyer I remember because it was so kind of surreal to me. But there was a, a Midwestern couple that uh, this was during, uh, you know, during the Depression years. I mean, life was tough, tough, tough. And, and uh, this, uh, this couple had no children, and they had like a 50-acre farm, and they were trying to eke a living out of this, this farm. They had no help. They had no kids. And... Um, um, you know, the, the, the husband worked like a dog trying to bring in the crops to sell them. The, the wife, you know, did all the stuff around the house. And then when she was done with that, she tried to do as many of the farm tasks that she possibly could physically do. And uh, one day, the, 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 the man, the husband, went into town, and he bought uh, an insurance policy, supposedly from Metropolitan Life. And um, when he came back, he told his wife, Okay, I bought this insurance policy, and this insurance policy will guarantee our future in the event that um, anything bad should happen. And it's imperative, it's important that these premiums be paid every month. So we have to put it in with all our other important bills. That premium has to be paid. And uh, so the years went by, and, and uh, things got tougher and tougher for them where this lady finally came to the point where she could no longer afford to pay that premium. And um, so she went into town and went to the, to the office and practically in tears explained, I, I, I can't make these payments any longer. And the lady at the front desk, you know, took the, the policy to, you know, see what was going on here and, and got the facts from this lady. And she, she told her, well, well ma'am, th- this policy is in, is in the name of your husband. Um, he's the owner of this policy. Yeah, there's some things we could possibly do, but he has to be he has to be the one to come in and make these changes. Well, the lady responded, "Well, my my husband's been dead for three and a half years," and this lady just kind of was went into shock and and she said, "Well, let me get my manager. He'll come out and talk to you." So, in a few minutes later, the the manager came came out and confirmed all the information. And, and, and it started asking her, well, you know, if you can verify the death certificate, do you realize that 
this life insurance policy will pay you $150,000 in the event of your husband's death. And since he died three and a half years ago, you're entitled to that plus um, a refund of all the premiums plus interest that you've paid in the last three and a half. Well, this lady had no clue about this. And as a result of this, she was able to live the rest of her life in, in relative comfort because of this policy and because it was so long ago. And, you know, it just kind of amazed me when, uh, when you know, I read this. It almost seemed unbelievable that this lady possessing this life insurance policy, paying these monthly premiums and being in such desperate financial condition and her husband dying had no clue what was the value of this, these pieces of paper in her very possession that could easily remedy her situation. But I was preparing this, you know, this message. I, you know, I was searching for an illustration, and this came to me, this, this, this story I just relayed to you. But you know what? Many of us in this room are in a very similar situation. We are spiritually poor. We have read the scriptures. We have listened to numerous sermons. We've read books on Christian principles. And you say that you have received Christ. But this abundant Christian life that is talked about is not mine. I'm convinced that through the power of the Holy Spirit and an open mind and heart from you, the the passage that I want to share with you this morning would go a long way to bring in a remedy to that situation. It's in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. You turn there, Ephesians 1, please, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having, that, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the, in, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I'm sure the recipients of this letter felt the wonderful words of encouragement that this prayer uh, by the Apostle Paul would have meant to them. There is a reason why this letter is, and this prayer is in the Bible, because in, in addition to having this prayer be specifically for the people of Ephesus, it is also for us as well. And I'm sure on top of that, the Apostle Paul is continuing this prayer in heaven for the church that he founded, and Jesus is also advocating for us as well, just as Paul is doing here. So let's, let's take this passage apart and let's look at what's going on here. The first thing is in verse 15, it says, for this reason. So what does that mean? 
Um, I don't have time to go into detail, but the first 14 verses of this passage of chapter 1 of Ephesians, it's just, just full of one biblical truth after another of our position, our standing, the blessings that we have as, as being Christians and believers in, in Jesus Christ, such things as, as um, you know, our call by the Father, how God calls us to him his destiny in us to be his sons and daughters, the redemption and forgiveness available to us in the Son, the opening of our eyes to the plan of God, our sealing by the Spirit, our enlightenment by the Holy Spirit in our lives and heart, and finally our inheritance that we have. It's for these reasons that Paul now is wanting to pray for the saints. The saints are you and I who have trusted in Jesus Christ and for the saints today who read this letter. His prayer is that they understand both in their minds and in their hearts these Christian truths. Still in verse 15, the first thing that Paul is affirming to the people of Ephesus in his prayer is the fact that these recipients are believers in Jesus Christ. Paul knows there are Christians based on two things, their faith and their love. This should be insightful for us to measure our faith to examine how we are doing as believers in Christ. Paul has has heard of their faith. We can read in Ephesians numerous examples of the people of Ephesus. But Paul is aware of their faith, that they have confessed Christ as, as Lord and Savior, and they've done so publicly. They have turned from their old ways of living and have begun to embrace righteousness. But the thing which has convinced Paul that their faith is true was the evidence of their love, their love one for another. It was the fact that love was beginning to be shown among them, a love for all the saints. Now, we need to pause and examine this for a minute and not just brush over this. A love for all the saints. Well, you may say, oh, man, Jim and I, we are the best of friends. We go to breakfast on Saturday, and he helps me with my chores, and I go to his house. I help him with his. And, you know, Susie and Debbie, they, they are just wonderful friends, wonderful examples of, of Christian love and how they help each other raise their children, and, and they've they known each other since high school. They're, just, they're just, just super good friends. They have a tremendous love. For each other. Now, these are great examples of love, and, and I wish that for every one of us, these types of relationships. But the problem with that is that what I've just described here is phileo love. It's a brotherly love that people have for each other, and it can exist with or without Christ. There's plenty of non Christians that have wonderful, loving friends and relationships. The love in this passage, in this verse, is not phileo love, but it's agape love. A love that is thoughtful, a love that's volitional, purposeful love that wills to love even the unlovely. It is the very love that God himself both first loved and continues to love us. In the famous verse John 3.16, for God so loved the world... Well, that's agape love. For God so agape loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Because God had to exercise agape love because, quite frankly, 
we are extremely unlovely in God's eyes. And, and in this passage, Paul is exhorting that he knows that these people are believers, both for their love for Christ, their commitment to Christ, and their agape love for all the saints. You can't be stating through one side of your mouth how much you love Jesus and from the other side be saying how much you despise or don't care for or even hate another brother or sister in Christ. You can't even be going to the point of, well, you know, Joe and I, we just don't get along. I'm just going to avoid him. There's no room for that in Scripture. There's no room for that for the believer in Jesus Christ because we are called to all agape love one another here within this uh, community of believers. And if that does not exist in your life, that sh- or if this does exist in your life, that should be a huge red flag to you that there's a deficiency in your relationship with God and at worst could possibly be a sign that maybe there's not even a relationship at all. I know most of us have hard people in their lives to love. I have it. I'm sure most of you as well. Now, don't worry. You know, a little later in, in, the, in the passage here, Paul's going to give us the clue on how to deal with that, and we'll be discussing that here. So let's move on in our passage in, in, in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Once becoming a Christian and second only to being obedient to God's word, knowing God better is, in my view, the next major objective in the Christian life. We need to ask ourselves, is this happening? Am I really getting to know God better? Scripture teaches an an important principle, and most of you are familiar with it, that mankind is created in the image of God, which means that humanity reflects God. You and I, we all are a reflection of God in some form or fashion. If we are a reflection of God and if we desire to, to learn about ourselves, then it only makes sense that the only way to truly accomplish this, accomplish this is to learn as much as we can about God. And as we do that, the automatic result is a better understanding of myself. It is the revelation and the understanding of the, the, the nature of God that will tell us what we are like. I believe that's one of the major reasons why many people today never seem to discover who they are. They never learn what they can do, what possibilities lie within, their, within themselves, and what potential is theirs because they have never discovered who God is. We reflect them. Therefore, it is extremely important that we come to know God better. This is the reason that we exist, that we may know God better. I hope this is happening to you both young and old. Since I'm borderline old and give myself a little bit of doubt of credit, I know that's a trap that so many of us fall into when we get up in years that, well, you know, I've kind of been around the block enough times and sort of have an understanding of what's going on with Christianity. I, I don't really have to push myself that much. But the truth is you never get over knowing more about God. He is such a fantastic being that revelations about his character and nature keep coming to us 
and we discover that as we know him better, we suddenly realize that we know ourselves better too. It's kind of like the Internet. You know, can you ever come to the end of the Internet, especially with the exponential growth of information that is constantly being dumped into it? God is multiple times greater than even that. Everything that Paul has said has been directed towards the mind. Paul is stressing the need to understand the great facts, the doctrines about God, to understand what they're thinking, the being and majesty of God. But now in verse 18, Paul makes a shift from head knowledge to our hearts. Let's look at 18 and 19. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. That seems odd. The eyes of the heart to grasp the doctrine and teaching about God. Do we? Can we see with our hearts? How how does this work? Perhaps somebody has tried to explain something to you that you didn't understand previously. And as they're explaining it to you, you say, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying now. Well, I really didn't see that with my mind, but uh, I understand, and that's a saying that we use. You didn't see it with your eyes. You saw it with your mind, and you saw it with the eyes of your mind. Someone may tell you about an unhappy situation or a situation that could possibly make you angry. Your response may be something like, I see, oh, that's so sad, or I see what happened here. I'm so angry about that. In these situations, it's your emotions of your heart that is seeing, that is reacting to what is being described to you. In Scripture, the the heart is the seed of our emotions. Paul's prayer is that they and we may so grasp the revelation that is made to the mind that it begins to enlighten to move and motivate not only our minds, but our hearts. That is when we become vital Christians, turned on, ready to serve, and highly motivated because we have begun to feel the power and wonder of the truth that we have been taught. It begins to resonate with inside of us. That is why Paul prays for the eyes of your heart that you may feel the truth, not just in your intellect, but also deep in your emotions that you may reflect and rejoice on who God is and what he's like. Truth first comes to the mind and then to the heart. But the strongest, most rebellious part of us is the will. That can never be changed, can never be budged until both the mind and the heart respond to the truth of God. When that happens, a deep-seated certainty results. You can now change a life when both the mind and the heart have been convinced and have been, t- excuse me, have been touched. I believe no better passage of Scripture catches this concept than in Luke uh, 24. Turn there, Luke 24, verse 27. Christ had just been resurrected, resurrected from the grave, and these two guys are walking down the Emmaus Road, and they're talking about the events of the day. I mean, Christ's resurrection, I mean, that was a huge, huge event. And so it was the talk of the town. 
and these two guys are, are talking about it. And then Christ just mysteriously sh- shows up and interjects himself in this process. Verse 27 of Luke 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far, far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Christ joins these two men who are walking on this road. And he, uh, you know, is teaching them. He's opening up the the scriptures to them. And this burning of the heart that these two men report on after Christ departs, this burning of the heart can only be achieved one way, and that is through the supernatural power of God's Holy Spirit through the prayers of his children, you and me. I've raised two kids, or maybe better said they raised me. Um, uh, And, you know, we've tried to, you know, they went through Awana, and they went to Sunday school, and they went to youth group, and they've done it all that, you know, Christian parents are supposed to do. They know the, 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 the facts. They have the head knowledge, the mind. But, you know, I, I can't instill that into their heart. Only God can do that. I'm praying for them. I'm praying that the things that we've been able to teach them in their mind is seeping into their heart. And then with that in their heart, it will also motivate their will as, as, as well. You know, folks, that's, you know, that's the, o- that's the only thing that we can do. And Paul here now is praying for these people of Ephesus, just like our pastors and elders pray for us, pray that in addition to the facts that we learn, that this stuff filters into our hearts and is demonstrated in our will and the actions we do. Life group leaders do that for their members of their life groups. Sunday school teachers, and hopefully mom and dad are doing that for their kids as well. So let's review where we have been. Three things. Teaching is to instruct the mind. Bathing what you are learning in prayer so that your heart is awakened and enlightened, compelling you to action. So what, so what is it that Paul wants the eyes of our hearts to see? Let's go uh, read in Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 21, what Paul wants the eyes of our hearts to see. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Three things that Paul wants our hearts to grasp. The hope to which he has called us is the first one. The second one, the riches of his inglorious inheritance in the saints. And third, his incomparable great power. So let's knock these things off. Hope, 
the hope to which he has called us. This, clearly, this is clearly the hope of being changed into the likeness of Christ, the hope of glory, which will only come about. I mean, we, we, we grow in the likeness of Christ in, in, in this life, but we truly become Christ-like once we are glorified in heaven. And Paul speaks of it in many places in the scriptures. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul here is encouraging people you know, to walk through your trials and, and afflictions in righteousness because great things will, will, will happen. There, there's a hope there. We hope that these things will happen. Turn to Romans 8:18. 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Again, there's a hope here. In other words, we must not look at life as the world around us does as being all that we'll ever get, as the only chance you are going to have for fulfillment. The world says, if you don't take it now, you're never going to get another chance. So the world grabs for everything they can whenever they're given the opportunity. The Christian, and especially the Christian who has hope, are not to think that way. We are being told that life is a school, a training period, it is where we are being prepared for something that is incredibly great, but it, and, but it is yet to come. Romans eight twenty two. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions as sons the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for hope for what he, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So hope is waiting for the unseen, you know, the promises of God. And, and you have to have that, that emblazoned in your heart. It's only in your head it won't last. It has to be emblazoned in your head, and that can only come about through a supernatural intervention of God's Holy Spirit in your life. We need to be praying that for ourselves. We need to be praying that for the people in our sphere of influence. In order to do this, you need hope, not just hope in our mind, but it has to be resonant in our hearts, the depth of our soul. And Paul is saying that this takes a supernatural power that can only come by prayer. We need to be able to hang on to the hope because all the world has to offer is futility and a system that is in decay. Okay, let's go back to Ephesians 1. Let's look at 18 through 20. What's the second item here? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that is the immeasurable... Okay, that's just verse 18. So what's the second item that Paul prays, prays for them here? Riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, we've got to be careful here because 
There's a lot of places in Scripture where it talks about, as believers in Christ, we're going to inherit things as soon as you put your trust in Christ and as you grow in Christ. And most importantly, once you go to, to, to heaven, you'll get tremendous inheritances. But that's not what this passage is saying here. What Paul is emphasizing here in this passage is that, is that he, has, he has an inheritance in us that we are God's inheritance. Um, Paul is emphasizing here that we belong to God and that we are his property. It is his delight to use us. And if we make ourselves available to be used, then enrichment and fulfillment beyond our wildest dreams await us. But if we are afraid to let God use us, we will narrow down this into a living rut of experience. And we will find that the Christian life is gradually turning drab, dreary, dull, and gray. That describes far too many Christians in this world. So what do we do? What do we do? First of all, we realize that he's not going to take his inheritance. Each one of us who's committed our life to Christ, we are God's inheritance. But he's not going to take it. He's not going to claim it unless we give it to him. Romans 12.1 says, it's, it won't be up on top there, but... Romans 12, 1 says, Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. I beseech you, brethren, fellow Christians, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. Give him the inheritance that he, he owns. If you have never consciously given your life to God, given him the right to work through you, you need to do so today. Don't worry, God is not going to leave you Hanging, he has given to each believer at least one gift, and they are given to us in order that when we begin to exercise them, we will find that we can help others, and life becomes an exciting adventure of faith. Secondly, we need to step out in faith and begin to allow God to work through us to use this gift he has given us and to serve the body of Christ And finally, we need to be praying for ourselves and others, just like Paul is doing for us, that we realize what a glorious inheritance we are to God. Too many of us don't realize that or just can't believe it, how valuable we are to God and how great a work he wants to work through us. Some of you may be saying, well, that all sounds good, but I don't have the strength to do that. I don't seem to be able to do anything like that. This is why Paul goes on to pray for the third item, which was what? That you may know in your heart what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Do you hear how Paul is describing this power? It's immeasurable. You can't measure it. It is so great. It is so overwhelming. That sounds so great. Where do I get that? What do I need to do to get this power? Sadly to say, the search for this power sends many off on wild goose chases. They look for either some kind of internal strengthening so that they feel adequate or perhaps to some miraculous event that is going to enable them to do something that, or, that they would not ordinarily be able to do or be possible for them to do, such as the miracles of some sort, the ability to heal, ability to change circumstances. 
Not that any of these things are wrong, but they will not give you the power that Paul is talking about here because this power was automatically given to you when you became a Christian. Too many of us think that God sits up in heaven and he's looking down on poor little Tommy and he says, oh, I need to send Tommy some power so he can go be a Sunday school teacher or work with the youth group or be up here and try to uh, deliver this message. No, it's not the way it works. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, he gives us the spirit of love, grace, and power, and all of it comes when we believe in him. What we need to understand is the way that this power works. Paul gives us the example in in verses 19 through 21 of, of Ephesians 1. Let's look at that, 19 through 21. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. The resurrection of Jesus is the model of the power that we possess. Unfortunately, when we think of of resurrection power, we focus on the angels rolling the rock, the earthquakes that had happened during that time, the terror of the Roman guards as they realized that some tremendous event had just happened totally out of their control. But what we don't realize is that each one of those things that I just listed are all events that happened after his resurrection. The actual resurrection had already occurred. And what I'm trying to say is that the resurrection power of God is not a power that makes a great demonstration. It's quiet. We are so used to power that makes noises that we don't think that we have power if we don't have any noise going on. Things buzz, things pulsate, pound, explode, bang. And we see that as power. But this is power that you don't feel. Resurrection power is power you don't feel. You don't have any sense that it is happening, but it is happening. It's interesting in this passage of Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, that in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. God will give us wisdom. God can give us knowledge. But when it comes to power, he doesn't give us that power. Verse 18, where it starts about the, 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 the power, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope, the inheritance, and the great power. We already possess that, that power. Paul is praying that our eyes would be open to the fact that we already have that. This power is also a very peculiar, has a very peculiar characteristic to it. It only happens when you begin to act. Only when you step out in faith that God will empower you, will the power begin to work through you to accomplish the things that you need to do, and that will leave you gasping at times and that what he had done through you. You don't feel this power. You don't suddenly feel strong, capable, and mighty. No, in fact, you feel weak. Paul says that God's power is made perfect in weakness. If you feel weak, if you feel inadequate, if you feel ineffective, this is no hindrance to being used 
of God. In fact, you are exactly where God wants you because now you are in a position where God likes best because now his power can work through you to accomplish great things instead of you doing it on your own. We've had Shane up here the last few weeks trying to recruit Sunday school teachers. And I'm sure the response from some uh, sounds like uh, they got all but a few positions filled. If some have responded, some of us may say, man, I don't know if I want to hang out with a bunch of snotty-nosed kids. And you say, no thanks. And what I steer you to when you say, if you would say something like that to me, I'd say, well, according to Ephesians 1.15, that uh, we're to have love, agape love, which is agape love for snotty-nosed kids and, you know, and all the saints. Those little kids up there are saints. And so there's something going on there. Or some of us may say, man, you know, I, I, I don't have five years of training to how to teach three- and four-year-olds biblical doctrine, so I can't do that. And what I would say to you is, you want to experience the power of God in your life. You, you go up to Shane and you say, Shane, I know you have a need. I'm willing to help out if you think you can use me. Bingo. You'll get a shot of power right then. And then if you want to feel more power, you go up to that classroom and you walk in to that door. And as soon as you walk in to engage those snotty-nosed kids, bingo, you're going to get another shot of power. Many people never discover what God can do in their lives because they keep waiting to feel powerful before they act. No, you won't feel powerful. But if you get, begin to reach out and act to meet the needs around you, suddenly you will discover that there is an unusual power at work. A great example of God's resurrection power at work is when God told the Israelites to cross the Jordan River during flood stage to occupy the, the promised land. People, and the first people in line were the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, this huge um, um, object. And uh, conventional wisdom would say, you guys step three feet into that river, you'll be gone. But these guys, they stepped out in faith. They stepped out in obedience to God. And what happened? As soon as their, the soles of their feet touched that water, zip, the, the Jordan opened up and they were able to cross over on dry land. Other areas of our lives that God's resurrection power just loves to get involved in is power to deal with our inner hurts and fears. Far too many of us have those issues and they are stifling your ability to serve and work for Christ. Power to abandon evil habits. Power to change bad attitudes and stop obnoxious behavior. The power to demonstrate agape love to those you just don't feel like loving. So what do most of us do? We avoid them. I would encourage you, I would challenge you, the people that God is touching your heart to give agape love to is that you step out and you engage them and bingo, you will begin to feel the power of God and the power to deal with broken relationships. Some of these issues, you may need uh, assistance, counsel from people who have gone through this before you and this church is full of, of 
godly people that would love to help you and walk with you through these issues. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. What a tremendous power of what God is willing to, to do through us. I close with the, the, the two final verses from our passage, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things. To who? To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know, we're, um, this church and every church I think you can find is full of a bunch of unlovely people. And it takes agape love to, to be able to love them. And no one who probably has to deal with it better than, than is the pastors of, of, of churches. And God has called us that, you know, the, the inheritance of the saints, the, 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 the power that he wants to work through us, the hope that we have will only be found through our ministry in the church. Black or not, good or bad, that's the mechanism that God has chosen to work through. And um, if you want to do it in another manner, I think you'll be shy of, of the power that God wants to offer to work through you. Ash, you can. Let me pray for us, and we'll close. Father God, my prayer is for you and for me that, um, that the eyes of our hearts may come to know the hope to which he has called each one of us the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that I am a person of value in the eyes of God and that God wants to do great things through me and the uncomparable power which he has already given to us is available to us each and every time that we step out in faith to serve him and to glorify him. Father, I thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.